0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, May 8th, 2021. Right now, it is, once again, Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthids here with us. And part 37 of our discussions of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. Or perhaps it should be R. White. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Over the last several presentations in this series, we have discussed the warnings of Peter and Jude, that a certain caste of intruders and infiltrators had corrupted the assemblies and doctrines of the people of God in ancient times, and that they would continue to do so in the Christian era. These infiltrators were clearly linked by both apostles to the fallen angels and described as a race which is both distinct from and hostile to the children of Israel. Doing that, we had cited passages from Paul of Tarsus where he had described those very same infiltrators in different terms, even labeling them as Satan. Then finally, where we had last left off, we discussed these infiltrators once again from the perspective of the Apostle John, how he had described them as a race of antichrists who came from among the Judeans, but who were not actually of the same origins as the Judeans or as the Christians of Judea. And therefore, they could not have been true Israelites. Now, in keeping with the same theme, we are going to discuss the prophet Malachi and the corruption of the priesthood, which he had prophesied centuries before the ministry of Christ, and thereby we may see that Malachi prophesied concerning the very Circumstances in Judea of which Christ had spoken, and the apostles of Christ had written, warning of in their epistles, and some of these prophecies were played out explicitly during the ministry of Christ. Truthvids, thank you for joining us once again
1: Hey Bill, thanks maby Yes, yeah, so in the previous podcast, um, the apostles kind of told you where you know the problem that there's these descendants of fallen angels and it, it, you know if you just believe them that should be enough but if you really want to get to the meat of it and understand the why the where the how and and all that then malachi the maccabees and josephus will help you piece it all together and you'll really get the context right and and hopefully today and over the next One or two podcasts we can really get into that and you see that The prophecies of the corrupted priesthood that that it was inevitable that one day there would be Jews and it all Gradually starts here kind of five six hundred BC where it starts to really go downhill and 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 the mixing starts, right? And then you'll you'll see that that there are Edomites who are partly descended from Cain, who are actually devils. Or if you want to go back to the Old Testament, they're, they're Nephilim, they're fallen ones. And you can piece it all together, and then you really understand why Christ is arguing with them with them, why they' why they are constantly stalking him and and also the apostles later on, and even centuries later, the same thing trying to prevent Christianity from spreading, and with this, your whole worldview changes, and everything makes sense, and it all fits into place uh, so so hopefully we can do that today for people right bill
0: absolutely and and all we're really doing is believing the words of the prophets. And observing how those words were fulfilled in history, and it's all right there in the books. We're we're not making anything up. It's amazing how disconnected from the words of the prophets and from history the modern churches are in their interpretations of the New Testament. That they don't pay much attention to the prophets or to history at all. So with this this is. Proof number 51 in our list, which should probably be over 100 by now if, if we'd have numbered these more more explicitly, I think. And, and this is um, Malachi and the Corrupted Priesthood. This is part one. We're just not being, going to be able to cover all of this today. What this part, this first part is going to do is basically set us up for his very clear prophecies concerning the corruption of the priesthood in Malachi chapter 2 so now we're going to be sort of stuck on Malachi chapter 1 in, in providing the background information that we need to understand chapter 2 I don't know if you have anything to add
1: yes yeah, so you, you always need to understand the background and, and the context because only then can you understand what's really going on right and and that's what it's all about today
0: Absolutely. And, and if you don't understand the background and the context, I don't know how you can understand the, the, the New Testament without understanding how the, um, the prophets had, had the, the words that they spoke, w- which explain all of what happened in the New Testament. And once you examine the words of the prophets and, and go and search out the history, which is available to see how these words were fulfilled it 's very clear that there 's a racial division and and the reasons why Christ had told his adversaries that you don 't believe me because you 're not my sheep they that, that doesn 't mean that they they 're not a sheep because they don 't believe him that means that they don 't believe him because they 're not his people. In the first place, that he only came for his people, that he spoke parables so that only his children could understand him, so that only the children of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, could understand him. So it it seems to me that all of the doctrines of the Judeo-Christian churches and the Roman, Catholic, and, and even the Orthodox churches are backwards. They're all backwards. They all have it wrong. At least many of my notes here this evening are condensed from parts 2 and 3 of my early 2017 commentary on the prophet Malachi, which were titled The Corrupted Priesthood and Universalism Rebuked, which we shall also see in Malachi chapter 2. While we are eager to discuss the opening verses of the prophet concerning Jacob and Esau, We'll have to leave most of that for a subsequent discussion of Jacob and Esau in prophecy, which I believe is the next proof in this list. However, here it is important to note that the words of the prophet attribute great significance to the distinction between Jacob and Esau. As he opens his book with a hypothetical dialogue between Yahweh God and the children of Israel, which begins in verse 2 with Yahweh telling Jacob, I have loved you, but attributing to the children of Israel the questions, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? So Yahweh responds by saying, That yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So, in this dialogue, the children of Israel are depicted in a manner which clearly portrays them as having a lack of understanding as to the intentions of Yahweh concerning Esau, and therefore he is offering them correction. We must ask, why are the Israelites of the time of Malachi depicted in this manner as being so concerned about Esau? Because of that lack of understanding. Because of that same lack of understanding. Today, we can say that the true Israelites these so-called lost tribes scattered in Europe and at that time Anatolia, Syria, and Mesopotamia had still not accepted this correction. And now, after 2,000 years of having been infiltrated and corrupted, they actually worship Esau by worshiping Jews instead of Jesus. So what these opening verses of Malachi represent is a condition under which the true children of Israel have suffered for at least 2,500 years since the prophet wrote these words. He's reflecting this, and it's right there in in black and white in the last book of the Old Testament. And there's good reason why Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, because it is almost certainly, out of the books that are in the Old Testament, it is certainly the last one that was written, or the one that was written most recently. And we'll get into that a little later. More significantly, in our current context, this expression of confusion sets the stage for what Malachi is going to prophesize. The confusion is evidently quite old, and it describes the origin of the Jews today, which we hope to make more clear as we proceed. This may have even reflected the political debate of Malachi's own time, since there were many Edomites in Palestine as he was writing. We can demonstrate, historically, that the modern Jews are, at least in large part, the descendants of the ancient Edomites, of the seed of Esau. And here we shall see that the priesthood became corrupted before the time of Christ. So once that is understood, it may become evident as to why the Jews had sought and still seek to destroy Christianity, which is the true religion of the prophets right from the beginning, as Christ had said. If you'd have believed Moses you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. The entire Bible is Christian. None of it is Jewish. It is difficult to pin down exactly when Malachi was writing. It is during the second temple period. The city, Jerusalem, is already rebuilt. The priests are already organized. And therefore, the time of Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, and Nehemiah is already past. Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, as well as the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, were in Jerusalem from the rebuilding of the temple beginning about 520 BC. And we have established elsewhere, and often in the past, and I can't even get into all the reasons why in, in this presentation that the term of Nehemiah in Jerusalem was from 502 to 490 BC when he was recalled, that he visited the city once again later on, as the final chapters of Nehemiah explain, and he found the priesthood to be corrupted, and Ezra returned even later, Around 458 or 457 BC, finding it corrupted once again. There are two instances of corruption of the priesthood, one in Nehemiah and another in Ezra, and they are not the same instance. They are two separate instances. As we may witness in Nehemiah chapters 12 and 13, The priests were already corrupting themselves then, and he disciplined them. But later, in the time of Ezra, when Ezra had returned to Judea after the Persian war with the Greeks, he had to send for priests from among Levites in Cassithia, as they were continuing to corrupt themselves by marrying, or I should say intermarrying, with other races. We will see that condemned here in Malachi next week in Malachi chapter 2. In Ezra chapter 8, it describes the return of several hundred more priests on this occasion. So, Malachi may be assigned to this time, but since he does not make any mention of the return of additional priests from captivity, which Ezra had sent for, it certainly seems that he most likely wrote even later. Furthermore, Ezra returned to finish the rebuilding of the city, whereas Zerubbabel only built the temple and Nehemiah only built the walls. Yet in Malachi, the city appears to be whole already, so he was almost certainly writing, sometime later, sometime later than Ezra. Once we determine the truth of these things, The meaning of the vision of the prophet is readily manifest. Since Malachi was writing in the second temple period, after the rebuilding of Jerusalem, then the desolate places to which he prophetically referred must be those places which were left desolate after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, as Christ also attested in the gospel, where he told his opponents that their house was left to them desolate It is Esau who is mentioned in Malachi chapter 1 as returning to rebuild desolate places and not Jacob. But since the Edomites had never returned anywhere to build up anything up to that point in history, when did the Edomites ever return and build desolate places at all? Or I should say rebuild desolate places at all. Never. Not until the 20th century and the advent of modern Jewish Zionism, when these people who call themselves Israel but are not, and they lie, have indeed returned to Palestine to rebuild the desolate places. The words of Malachi are prophecy, so they may allude to events from the past to explain his present and to prophecy Of events in the future. So here he is not necessarily speaking of what had already come to pass, and it wasn't Edomites who built Jerusalem in his time, but rather of what would come to pass sometime in the future. So in the next.
1: Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say that the return to Palestine, it's all just for the deception, right? To really uh, put a barrier between us realizing we're the Israelites. I believe so, absolutely. That's the main reason why they returned and revived, and, you know, quote unquote, revived Hebrew, etc. To
0: uphold their chosen people myth. Yes, I certainly believe that. And, And all of true Israel, the white Christian nations, are. Indeed, to this day, more concerned with Jews and what happens to Jews, whether the perspective is religious or secular, they're more concerned with what happens to Jews than they are to what's happening to
1: themselves. And there must be Jews who are aware of this prophecy, right, in Malachi, and realize who they truly are.
0: Well, I I mean... In, in Jewish almanacs, it, it is acknowledged that Esau is found in modern Jewry. The Jews, at least in, in their own internal rabbinical writings and in publications that are meant for Jews, do admit that at least a certain number of Jews are partially at least descended from Esau. They do admit that. They won't admit that they are all descended from Esau. Esau is found in modern Jewry. That is a, a quote from a Jewish source, and I don't have it at hand because I wasn't prepared to bring it to the table today, but it's still a rather ambiguous statement. You could say that Sioux Indians are found in America. That doesn't mean that all Americans are Sioux Indians, right? (laughs) So it's an obscure statement. It's ambiguous. And it's probably purposely ambiguous because the truth is that after 2,000 years, 2,200 years of Edomites being considered Judeans or Jews, with... The actual people of Christ, hearing his word, as he said, and becoming Christians, who is left in Jewry but Edomites? And, and those who rejected Christ, who were of his own people, would ultimately be subsumed into the Edomite Jews and mixed with them.
1: And the funny thing is the people... You know the quote-unquote Palestinians. Who are, they're they're the probably Edomites as well, right? It is is all so confusing. What uh, what most people uh, believe when it's all really just a lie. They're all Edomite.
0: Well, right. They're all Canaanites, certainly. And and some of them are descended in part from Greeks and Romans, and and many of them are descended in part from the Arab invaders and and the Islamists who who had subdued and ruled over that area for thousands of years, so or, or at least for fifteen hundred years. So they're all mixed race mongrels, they're all bastards. And and they're probably all at least part Canaanite, part Edomite, part Negro, part Arab, part Greek, part Roman, part Israelite. I, I mean that that's the nature of the area. And it's been that way for 1,500 years. 1,500 years in some respects and much longer in other respects because the Canaanites were always there. They were just simply marginalized throughout much of history. So in the next verses of Malachi chapter 1, which are verses 4 and 5, we read, Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, Yahweh will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now, let's think about this. Ancient Edomia, the land to the south of Palestine, near Arabia, disappeared from the maps during the Persian period. As the Edomites migrated northwards into the lands of Judah and Israel. This migration is noticed in Ezekiel chapter 35, where we read an oracle against the Edomites. And it says in part, because thou hast said, this is Yahweh speaking to Edom, because thou hast said, these two nations, meaning Israel and Judah, and these two countries shall be mine, meaning they shall belong to Edom now, because the Edomites moved into them, and we will possess it, whereas Yahweh was there, because the Edomites had taken these lands when Yahweh was no longer there and his people were no longer there. Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh God, I will even do according to thine anger and according to thine envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them, meaning Israel and Judah, and I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee, when Yahweh has judged Well, Edom has never been judged since. Edom's own land had been laid waste, and now they've moved up into Palestine, and they've inhabited Palestine from about the 6th century BC, which is when Ezekiel was writing, all the way to the time of Christ when they were manifested as Judeans or or as Jews, when did they return to build desolate places up to that time? Never. This is a return. So they have to be building places that they had formerly possessed that were destroyed. But they never went back to Edomia. They never returned anywhere to rebuild desolate places. So this must be, this prophecy must be, speaking of Edomites who would return to somewhere that they had formerly, and that those places were desolate and that they would rebuild them, it can only be speaking of the modern Jews, Zionism, and the return to Palestine in the the 1900s, in the 20th century. Ezekiel wrote those words concerning the Edomites moving into these two countries, Israel and Judah, shortly after the first temple and the city were destroyed, by what was left of Judah by the, and what was left of Judah by the Assyrians had went off into Babylonian captivity, whatever was left of Judah, by the Assyrians went off into Babylonian captivity when the temple and when Jerusalem were destroyed, around 580 BC. So, in the Persian and Hellenistic periods, what was later called Edomia was actually a significant portion of the lands of ancient Judah and Israel. The Greeks of the time considered the ancient lands of Edom to belong to the Nabataean Arabs. And Strabo referred to them in that context while also explaining that the Edomites had originally come from there, from where the Nabataean Arabs were, but had moved into Palestine where they dwelt with the Judeans. And Strabo said explicitly, sharing the same customs with them. By the first century, and Strabo was writing in the early 1st century A.D., by the 1st century they had lost their identity as Edomites, and Edomites, or Edomians, disappeared from history in the Roman period because they were Judeans. But the truth is, so the truth is that from that time, they were thereafter known exclusively as Jews. If we would ask the question, "O Edom, where art thou? The only legitimate answer would be Jewry. The Jews are Edom.
1: Yeah, you just wish modern Christians would research that and, 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 you know, where's Edom and where are the lost tribes and then put the two together and voila, right?
0: Absolutely. (laughs) There is no doubt. And that we can see these races of people clearly once you put the history together and the struggle between these two races throughout that history, which we'll get on to when we discuss Jacob and Esau in prophecy. The Edomians, or Edomites, never rebuilt the original land of Edom, and it remains a barren desert wasteland even to this very day. When Malachi was writing, they were occupying a large portion of the waste places of ancient Israel. During the time of the Maccabees, their cities were destroyed until they were forcibly converted to the religion of Judah, which in this corrupted context we should now call Judaism because it's no longer the the religion of Moses. We should save further discussion of this topic for, the, for that next proof in our list, which is about Jacob and Esau in prophecy. But for now, we should examine those parts of Malachi which prophesy the corruption of the priesthood, as an understanding of this has immediate consequences on an ability to understand, to truly understand the New Testament, and why the priests were so divided over the coming of the Christ. This is the only thing that explains it properly, and it's the only thing that agrees with all the words of the prophets, and with all of the words of Christ himself, and with all of those warnings in those epistles of the apostles. The Judeo-Christian understanding is contrary to the words of the apostles. It's contrary to... To the words of the prophets. It's contrary to the sayings of Christ. It's not Christian at all. It's Judaism. It's a false religion developed by Jewish converts to Christianity in the Middle Ages. None of it is apostolic, none of it is orthodox, none of it is Catholic in the true sense of the word Catholic, which meant to receive the faith, the whole faith, and not just part of it, like Marcion or Jews claiming parts of it were true. So before we begin on this corrupted priesthood, we're going to spend most of this program offering some further historic background, which it, it, this groundwork we've laid many times before, but it has to be laid again. Every time that we bring up this topic, we have to state our case and lay this foundation because we never know who's going to be listening here for the first time. But I would urge them to go on further and investigate further. In the so-called Apocrypha and the intertestamental biblical literature, We have two books called Maccabees, and they're known as 1st and 2nd Maccabees. This word Maccabee is the English spelling of a Hebrew word meaning hammer, and it was given as a nickname to the high priest Judas, the son of Matthias, when he prevailed in battle over the Syrians and ultimately gained. The Syrian, I should say, the Greek Greeks of Syria, and ultimately gained independence for the people of Judah at Jerusalem, perhaps around one sixty-five B.C. I believe (coughs) that first happened. Judas was succeeded by his brother Simon from whom descended the Hasmonean dynasty of high priests, sometimes referred to as the Maccabees, after Judas. These books overlap one another, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, rather than following one another. Evidently, they were written independently, as one is apparently a chronicle of the time which was perhaps made by the priests, and the other is a history of the same time which is attributed to one Jason of Cyrene. However, neither of them explains what happened after the ascension of John Hyrcanus to the office of high priest around 129 BC. Neither of them, that they get to John Hyrcanus, but they don't explain much of what happened after the time of John Hyrcanus. They,
1: they cut off right there. It just right suddenly there. cuts off, right? Yeah. Just, just it, at that moment, right?
0: Right. And, and it's incredulous to me that if a chronicle was being kept, which First Maccabees seems to be It wasn't presented as a history book written by anyone in particular. It's in the same general style that you would expect from the book of Chronicles, 1st or 2nd Chronicles. It's in that same style. It seems to be a more or less official chronicle made at Jerusalem of that period of time where, and it's written in the same concise manner, where it suddenly cuts off with John Hyrcanus, it seems disingenuous that they didn't continue to maintain a chronicle, or somebody didn't like the chronicle and got rid of it, and it's missing, it's disappeared, which is what I suspect... Because we're told, and and this, I didn't note this in, in advance for this presentation. You never know what kind of turns these conversations are going to take. But it was said that Herod had destroyed a lot of the records and the genealogies in the temple because he didn't want it to be known that he was an Edomite. He didn't want that made public, and, and he probably didn't want it to be known that many Edomites were in the priesthood, if I had to guess, but that's stated by, I don't know if it was stated by Josephus, it's definitely stated by Eusebius of Caesarea, later on.
1: And today they do the exact same thing, that they have crypto-Jews who hide who they are, right, and they, they've always changed their names historically, to hide uh, that it's a Jew name.
0: Exactly, but they didn't destroy the writings of Josephus, and and there's probably better historical reasons for that, because Josephus really didn't write, he wasn't born until 37 AD, and he really didn't write his Antiquities and his Wars of the Judeans and his other works until after the second temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed by the Romans. And he wrote them in Rome, where they would have been preserved by Christians, theoretically. And they were preserved. They were actually preserved by both Christians and Jews. He had written antiquities in order to prove in his debates with various pagan Romans or Greeks in order to prove the antiquity of Judea and the religion of the Judeans. That's why he wrote antiquities. He wrote wars at a time when he was trying to encourage the barbarians in the north, which are the 12 tribes in the captivity which are the Scythians and and the Galatahi and, and the Alans and other tribes, the Parthians, to revolt against Rome as the Judeans were revolting against Rome. So those works survive to us, and this history, even though it's missing from the books of Maccabees, it's in the pages of Josephus. But it's also mentioned by Strabo, And Strabo is writing, he died around 25 AD, so it's hard to tell exactly when he's writing, but he's evidently writing in the very early years of the first century AD. He has no axe to grind, Strabo, either um, religiously, philosophically. he, He has no motivation to protect or to instigate or to slander Jews. He has no motivation whatsoever. And, and he wrote very objectively in book 16 of his geography that Edomians and Judeans were dwelling together in Palestine, and they were practicing the same laws and customs. How could that be, unless the history of Josephus is true? And Josephus had explained that very thing, but in much greater historic detail. And he also explained it very objectively. He didn't have any cause against the Edomites. Josephus was a Pharisee of the time who actually admired the Herodians. He admired Herod. He thought Herod was a great guy. He was a personal friend of the Edomite king, Herod Agrippa II. So he had inside information on the family of Herod, and and his work shows that he was intimately acquainted with the Herods. And he said four times in his writing that the first Herod was an Edomite. Four times, and that his mother was an Edomite. His mother was an Edomite. His father was an Edomite. His father was a, an Antipas was an Edomite. Was a general in the Judean army in in the first century BC, in the early first century BC, and that Herod had been appointed the governor of Galilee under this under Alexander Janius, the high priest who was the first high priest to call himself king, in in the early first century, before the Romans came and conquered Judea. And that Herod gained that position on account of his father's influence. And that put Herod in a position to, to marry the daughter of the high priest. Or perhaps she was a niece of the high priest, I believe. So... Josephus had no reason or or no agenda to, to create lies about all of this. And neither did Strabo. So speaking of that, Hercanus, John Hercanus. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Going back to the Maccabees. Once the Maccabees gained independence, as the books of the Maccabees illustrate... The policy of the priest was to burn and drive the inhabitants from out of all of the cities of ancient Judah and Israel, reclaiming the holy land for themselves. But after John Hyrcanus came to power, that policy was changed, and the inhabitants of those cities would be forcibly converted to Judaism and circumcised and be allowed to remain. So, around the same time, the historian Josephus first mentions, I should say, writing about events which are around the same time. The historian Josephus first mentions the emergence of the parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we can only conjecture that these parties arose due to divisions over this policy as Pharisee is from a Hebrew word which essentially means separatist
1: so and, speaking and Bill am um, sorry we also see when they were burning the cities and driving them out that sometimes they did take the children and, or, and women back with them right that they had mercy on them but not the men and I yes. think that's even in Maccabees itself
0: yes I, I believe it might be but that right they weren't doing the right thing. They still weren't doing the right thing. They were still corrupting themselves as Ezra, as the priests had done in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So speaking of that Hyrcanus who came to the high priesthood around 129 BC, Josephus had written in Antiquities Book 13 that Hyrcanus took also Dora, which is ancient Dor on the coast, and Marisa, which is the Marishah of the land of Judah in the Old Testament. And he called them cities of Edumia, because Edumia was now in Judah and Israel. It was no longer in the south, in Arabia. Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Edumia, and subdued all the Edumians, and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. But that is not all, as it is evident that the successors of Hyrcanus continued in that new policy. So, a little later, in the same book, Antiquities, book 13, Speaking of the time of Alexander Janius, which was a few decades later, I think Alexander Janius probably came to the high priesthood in 105 BC, maybe 110 BC, 105 BC, and he actually remained high priest, I believe, until about 76 BC. He was high priest for a long time, and he was the first of these Maccabees that were high priests and were the functioning rulers of Judea at the time, he was the first to call himself a king while they were independent, while they were still independent from Rome. So writing of the time of Alexander Janius a few decades later, Josephus described the taking and the forced conversion of the non-Israelite populations, ostensibly Edomites and Canaanites, of 30 additional cities throughout Judea, informing us that out of them all, only Pella was destroyed because its inhabitants refused to convert to Judaism. So Alexander Janius had converted all of these other people, which were primarily Edomites and Canaanites, to Judaism. And it happened before 76 B.C. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem from about 63 B.C., the people were all treated as Judeans and as equal subjects of Rome, no matter their original tribe. Once they were under the dominion of Rome, their original tribe no longer mattered and they all fell under the jurisdiction of Herod, the Edomite, who sold out the Hasmonians and was made king of Judea by the Romans. All of these Edomites and Canaanites and others of the mixed races became the so-called Jews of later history. During this period of Judean history, the substance of Judea and the religion of the people suffered drastic changes. No longer was it the faith of Moses, Ezra, and Nehemiah. From this time, it was open to anyone who would undergo circumcision, as Christ had told the Pharisees, that they they would travel high and low to seek a convert, and once they find him, they make them twice fold the child of hell. So, Judaism became absolutely antithetical to the ancient faith of Israel. From this time, the Judeans sought to be a religiously separate sect in the midst of the pagan Hellenistic world. While its true exclusivity, its true and original exclusivity based on race was lost forever. And even today, the word Pharisee is now interpreted by historians in that context. Their opponents, the Sadducees, were always the party of the wealthy minority. And evidently, the Edomite Herodians favored the Sadducees, since from the time of the first Herod, most of the high priests were appointed from that party, from the party of the Sadducees.
1: And the exact same thing happened with uh, Christianity, right? Crypto Jews, and suddenly it's uh, Christianity is universal. Like, it took a little bit longer, but it's always them. Those those bastards are always behind it, right?
0: Absolutely. In the time of the Maccabees, there is no, there are no more warnings against race mixing. There are no more warnings against taking strange wives from the surrounding tribes that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. All of that's gone by the time of the Maccabees. The race-mixing of the priests in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra is described explicitly, and it troubled those prophets greatly, so it was explicitly condemned, It's all gone by the time of the Maccabees. But it didn't end. It became accepted. So now, from verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1, we shall see that it did not end with Ezra and Nehemiah, as the prophet writes A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith Yahweh of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name, and you say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Yahweh was being dishonored because the priests were not keeping the law. Yet they are portrayed here as being ignorant as to how they were transgressing. Honoring a father necessitates obedience to a father. So Esau troubled his parents when he took alien wives, which cost him his birthright and doomed his posterity. But Jacob obeyed his father So the promises to Abraham fell to him, and his posterity were blessed. However, now the priests of Malachi's time evidently also held their heritage in contempt. And therefore, the substance of their sacrifices is used as an analogy for their disdain. In verse 7. Ye offer bread polluted upon mine altar, and you say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that you say, The table of Yahweh is contemptible, and if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Now according to the law, which is found in Leviticus chapter 4, the offerings which were made to Yahweh had to be without spot or blemish. They had to be perfect. All of the laws concerning sacrifices commanded that the sacrifices be without blemish, meaning that they would have no deformities of any kind. Such animals would, of course, be valued more dearly than deformed or blemished animals. So it would seem that the priests were more concerned with personal gain than they were with pleasing God. So we left off halfway through verse eight. So we will continue. (coughs) Offer it now, meaning these lame and sick sacrifices. Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith Yahweh of hosts. And now I pray you, Beseech God that He will be gracious unto us. this has been by your means will He regard your persons, saith Yahweh of hosts and that 's all a dialogue attributed to the priests in reference to a governor. That word for governor here is Pekah, which first appears in First Kings chapter ten and four times in the books of Kings and Chronicles, mostly of foreign rulers. But it is a title that was used by, it was used of Nehemiah and others of his period to describe governors of Jerusalem and other provinces of the Persian Empire. So the use of this title here in this context also helps to date Malachi. Malachi that he's definitely in the Second Temple period. Ezra did not use the title of himself, but he fulfilled the role from the time of his commission by Artaxerxes, which is described in Ezra chapter 7. Secular authorities would not accept deformed or sickly animals as payment, so why should the priests offer such things unto their god? Dealing unjustly with an earthly governor, one would be rejected. So, dealing unjustly with Yahweh, one's person or status would not be accepted by him. But evidently, these priests had no true fear of God in the first place. The first half of verse 10, which we are about to present, is more acceptable than contextually as it is found in the Septuagint, but here we will first read it from the King James Version. Who is there among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. Once again, we will leave off halfway through verse 10. In the Septuagint, Brenton's English reads the Greek of this passage quite fairly because even among you the doors shall be shut, and one will not kindle the fire of mine altar for nothing. In the hexapla of origin, (coughs) excuse me, while some versions offer reading closer to what is found in the King James Version, we will nevertheless base our commentary on the version found in the Septuagint, with which the version in the Hexapla agrees, because even if it were the priests shutting the doors for naught, if their sacrifices are in vain, then only Yahshua Christ can open or shut the door for them. That is because the doors mentioned here are the axis, are, are the, I'm sorry, access point between man and God, the separation of the inner chamber of the temple into which the high priest went once a year to make propitiation for sin. With the presence of Yahweh descending upon the mercy seat. Paul explained this in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 where he also stated that now such propitiation is found only in Christ. So, In this regard, in this same regard, we have the words of Yahshua Christ in the Revelation, in the message to the church of Philadelphia, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens, and no man shuts, and shuts, and no man opens, I know thy works, Behold, I have set before thee an open door. Christ is the door for the sheep, which is open, access to God. And no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So this is the door spoken of here in Malachi. And it was represented in the temple as the door going from the court to the inner chamber where the high priest made propitiation for sin. It is the door of this message to the assembly at Philadelphia in the Revelation as well. Then in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 13, we read the words of Christ where he said, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter therein and shall not be able because the door is only open to the sheep. When at once the master of the house has risen up and has shut to the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer unto you and say, I know not whence you are. In other words, I do not know you. I don't know where you came from. Then shall he begin to say, then shall ye, I'm sorry, begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and now is taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. He rejected them because he didn't know from where they came. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And for that church there was used as an example of one which could do no wrong. For that reason, that church was used as an example of one which could do no wrong. The church was never criticized for anything, so for them the open door could not be shut. Ostensibly, Christ, not knowing the workers of iniquity or where they came from, they are not merely Israelites who had sinned, for whom he has promised forgiveness. But rather, they are not Israelites at all, where Malachi says in the later part of this verse, omitting the added words, "And will not kindle mine altar for nothing." The references, the reference is to sacrifices which are being made in vain. And in Luke chapter 13, we see likewise that there are men who ate and drank in the presence of God and were shut out of the kingdom for reason that he didn't know them. He never knew them. This is indeed related to the shutting and opening of the door to the kingdom of heaven. Because to practice brotherly love with Christ, one must first be of the brethren of Christ. Firstborn among many brethren.
1: Yeah, if any non-whites amongst us, and and he does anything that may benefit us, well, he shouldn't be there in the first place, should he? He's an infiltrator.
0: Absolutely. As the word of Yahweh says to the children of Israel in Amos chapter 3, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. So with Yahweh God knowing aforetime, the children of Israel only, then only the children of Israel can be pre- predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. The door is shut for all others. Where it says here in Malachi, even among you the doors shall be shut. It shows that some of the priests are bastards who will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. While these priests are supposedly the priests of Yahweh, of the tribe of the levites reading on further in malachi the meaning of the oracle shall indeed become evident especially when we get to chapter 2 as to why their sacrifices are in vain and why they are not offered any opportunity for repentance here malachi continues in verse 10 where the word of yahweh says to the priests I have no pleasure in you, saith Yahweh of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. So here it seems that for their disdain of Yahweh, he will not accept an offering from them at all, even if they tried to repent and make a legitimate offering. So it also seems that Yahweh is not even giving these priests any opportunity to repent. They are ostensibly beyond repentance, as Esau also was, according to Paul of Tarsus in Hebrews chapter 12, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Why did he sell his birthright? Because he didn't care about it in the first place. And he didn't lose his birthright because he sold it. He had already lost it because he raced next. So that's why Paul labeled him as a fornicator and a profane person. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears.
1: Yeah, so race mixers really don't care about their bloodline at all, do they? And and their birthright. That's the message here, really.
0: Absolutely. And and that is going to become completely and perfectly evident when we get to the next chapter of Malachi. And we have to present all of this because it all relates to this corrupted priesthood. This chapter and, and the history that we've presented here set the foundation for understanding Malachi chapter 2. And Malachi chapter 2 is a prophecy of things, and circumstances, which existed in the ministry of Christ in the New Testament,
1: and uh, all all these like uh, Judeo Christians who think, oh, oh, if you know a nigger accepts Christ, then surely Yahweh will have mercy on him. Well, well this verse right here says, no, he will not accept an offering ever from the hand, right? Right.
0: He's not saying, but if you will give me a righteous offering, he's not saying that. He's saying that no offering is going to be accepted. The first person to contend to act as a priest and whose offering Yahweh rejected for no apparent reason was Cain, who had no brotherly love and slew Abel, whose offering had been accepted. Cain was of the wicked one, and in spite of that, Yahweh challenged him to do good. Yet Cain immediately went and killed Abel, proving that he could not do good because sin lieth at the door. Because he was a bastard in the first place, he could never do good. Soon Malachi will reveal for us the precisely similar nature of these priests. Only the historical details which we have presented explain why this is so. So next, in Malachi chapter 1, we see a statement which implies the ultimate disposal of this Levitical priesthood, as other prophecies also have, where Malachi continues in verse 11, and he says, for, or Yahweh says through the prophet, for from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same." My name shall be great among the Gentiles, which is the word for nations, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, the same word for nations, saith Yahweh of hosts and and this word for nations is interpreted as Gentiles, which isn't even an English word, or as heathen. Quite indiscriminately in the King James Version. And three times here, the King James Version also adds the words shall be to the text. It's in italics every time, and it doesn't belong every time. The Greek Septuagint has the perfect tense, as if these things were already fulfilled. The Latin Vulgate has the present tense where Yahweh is insisting that his name had already been magnified among the nations. But this may be interpreted to mean that the truth of the prophecy already given is inevitably going to be fulfilled, as we shall see from Isaiah just how the magnification of his name was prophesied to happen. Here in the King James Version, The same Hebrew word, Goy, or Goyim in the plural, is translated in two different ways, as Gentile and as heathen, in spite of the fact that they appear in the same context. Speaking of the children of Israel, who had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, Yahweh explained through the prophet Isaiah how his name would be magnified among the nations where he said, this is Isaiah chapter 66, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escaped of them unto the nations. To Tarshish, pull, and lud, that draw the bow. To Tubal and Javan. To the Isles afar of off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Again, that should have been translated as nations. It's the same word that was translated as nations earlier in the same verse. Isaiah sixty six nineteen. Isaiah is describing the scattering of the children of Israel throughout the nations of the Near East and Europe. But in that passage, Isaiah is also explaining how the promises to Abraham and Jacob were fulfilled. And furthermore, Isaiah explains how this verse of Malachi is fulfilled. Abraham was promised that his seed or offspring would become many nations. And Jacob inherited that promise. The word for nations in those promises is the same word, goy or goyim, in the plural. In Romans chapter 4, Paul asserted that the promise to Abraham was fulfilled. That his seed became many nations. According to the declaration, so shall thy seed be. Isaiah shows that Paul is correct in his assessment of history and scripture. Because in those places, the children of Israel became many nations. The fact that Christians have worshipped this God of this Bible for so many centuries, and that the apostles of Christ had brought his gospel to Europe, in itself proves that all of these things which we claim are true.
1: So, so Europeans fulfill this even though we're blind to it, even though we don't realize it, that by having Christianity for all that time, we glorified the name of Yahweh, right?
0: Absolutely. That's the only way that his name is known among all the nations, all of these nations. That's the only way. If it weren't for Christianity what would the Jews be doing sharing their torah that they would have destroyed it they wouldn't share it at all the Talmud does destroy it but what would they do be sh- what would the Jews do be doing sharing their torah with all of the pagans in the world but if it weren't for Christianity so this verse of malachi by itself is also a Messianic prophecy, which means nothing without the coming of Christianity to Europe. And it came without Levitical priests, where it says that in every place incense shall be offered under my name. The fulfillment of this prophecy came from about the 4th century forward, when Christianity became the religion of the Roman world, as it was already taking hold in Britain and among the Germanic tribes, And Christ replaced the idols of Europe. The pagan temples being converted for Christian use. So from this point, speaking through the prophet Malachi to the priests in Judea, Yahweh gives them no room for repentance from their errors and informs them that in spite of them, his name will be glorified among the nations, meaning these many nations outside of Judea. Next, he chastises them for profaning his name, telling them that the result of it will be that his name will be glorified among the nations because they profaned his table and his altar, where we read in verse 12. But you have profaned it in that you say the table of Yahweh is polluted and the fruit thereof. Even his meat is contemptible." So here we see that Yahweh had never planned to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. The second temple was doomed to failure from the outset, but it was successful only because its failure was the plan of Yahweh God for it all along. He planned for it to fail. These things were also prophesied earlier. In Daniel chapter 9, for example, where we read that the sacrifices would be taken away and the city would be destroyed. And in Zechariah chapter 11, where the Old Covenant is broken forever. Yahweh did not make a mistake by choosing the Jews, as the denominational churches like to imagine. The Jews were never chosen in the first place. It's already stated in Daniel before the second temple was built, in Zechariah, while the second temple was being built, and here in Malachi, that this temple is doomed to failure. His plan was to use Jerusalem as the starting point for his glorification among the nations, as we have read in Isaiah, something which is also evident in Zechariah, Daniel, and others of the prophets. Judea became a mixed-race nation, producing nothing but contention and strife, while the glorification of Yahweh was fulfilled when the nations of scattered Israel turned to Christ, who had been slain by his enemies in the midst of his own countrymen. They came out from us, but they were not of us. This is so clear throughout these prophets. I don't know how The churches can possibly ignore this if it's brought to their attention. But they do. They manage to. They manage to remain willfully ignorant of this.
1: So, so Bill, um, is is this correct that the third temple was really a fake temple or or one built by Herod? And the real third temple was Christ, who became, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit within us. And and that's the real third temple within us now. It's not the fake one Herod built.
0: That's true, but I don't know if we call it the third temple. I think that's the first temple, <laughs> the very yeah. first temple, when God blew his spirit into Adam in the first place. And, and the recognition of that is the recognition of the Melchizedek priesthood and the original plan of God, which is why Christ is likened a, Mel- a priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Levi. So this third temple, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about the third temple, and there is no prophecy of a third temple. There's a prophecy, that, there's a very enigmatic prophecy of a temple in Ezekiel, but that temple is never going to be built because that temple isn't, it, it's, that prophecy shouldn't be taken Literally. The truth is that there have already been three temples. The second temple was built in 520 BC and finished by 516 BC. That is very clear and it's very explicit in Ezra and Nehemiah. So if the first temple took only four years to build... By the building standards of the time, it could not have been a very magnificent temple. Not at all. It was defiled by the Syrians, but it wasn't destroyed. So it was restored in the time of the Maccabees in in 165, from, from around the period of 165 BC. But Josephus explains that Herod built a new temple from the foundations up, meaning that the second temple was completely dismantled and, and the temple was rebuilt from the foundations up, and that that temple, as it is stated in the New Testament, took 46 years to build. So that must have been much more magnificent than... Zerubbabel's temple, which took four years to build. And that's the temple that was destroyed by the Romans. So there have already been three physical temples in Jerusalem. But Herod's temple was basically, even though it was recognized as the house of God, even by Christ, Yahweh never dwelt in that temple. There was no the Covenant in that temple. There was never a mercy seat in the second temple. So there was no real propitiation for sin according to the law in the second temple. It couldn't be made. Because it couldn't be made according to the law. So the second temple was doomed to failure from the start. It was supposed to fail. It was supposed to be temporary. The prophecy in Daniel, Yahweh God is instructing Daniel that this return and, and rebuilding of Jerusalem is going to be temporary. 70 weeks or 490 years. So we see in Zechariah and here in Malachi also, that it was designed to be temporary. And we have three witnesses, at least, and is really more than that. Malachi chapter 1, verse 13. The priesthood portrayed as having purposely profaned the temple by offering unworthy sacrifices. We would assert that the sacrifices are only being used as an analogy for the deeper problems found among the priesthood. But those problems we won't have an opportunity to discuss until next week when we get to Malachi chapter 2. So here in verse 13, Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and you have snuffed at it, saith Yahweh of hosts. You brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith Yahweh? In other words, the priests are purposely shortchanging God. The rhetorical question has already been answered, where Yahweh has already told them that he would not accept their offerings. Here it's further illustrated that he's not giving them any opportunity to repent. And we'll see that in verse 14 momentarily. So here the charges are merely being repeated. And while it is evident that they rather purposely profaned the sacrifices, the implication of the first clause seems to be that it was too burdensome for them to keep the law. And for that reason, the priests have objected. So they purposely set aside the law and shortchanged Yahweh in his offerings. And if the law was burdensome to keep in this respect, what more important matters of the law would a priest neglecting to keep, not wanting to be burdened? And of course, they certainly do become evident in Malachi chapter 2. So perhaps with this, it begins to become apparent how it was that the Edomites and other Canaanites were so easily subsumed into the Judean religion and culture only a few short centuries after Malachi, and no more than 300 years after, even if Malachi wrote as early as the time of Ezra. So we think it possible that he wrote a little later than that, even as late as the 4th century B.C since he was always counted among the minor prophets of the Septuagint, which was made in the early 3rd century BC. But that is not really all that important. We'll go on to read the last verse of Malachi chapter 1, verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a male, and vows and sacrifices unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith Yahweh of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen, or, once again, nations. The deceiver here is the priest who purposely sacrifices the blemished animal, the lame animal, the blind animal, while holding back a healthy one, That sounds just like something a Jew would do, attempting to shortchange God as they shortchange men in all of their transactions. The priests disdained God, but they continued to act in a capacity as priests. So they were serving the temple with lip service, purposely going through the motions under a pretense of righteousness, ignoring the substance of the law, and operating only for their own gain. So later on, talking to their direct successors, Christ had said in the gospel, in various places in Matthew chapter 23, woe to you blind guides who say, he, should, he who should swear by the temple it is nothing, but he who should swear by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. So they had a greater care for the gold than they had for the temple. And he who should swear by the altar, it is nothing. But he who should swear by the gift upon it, he is obligated. So they had a greater care for the gifts on the altar than they had for the altar itself. Christ goes on to say, Because you give a tenth of the mint and anise and cumin, and neglect the weightier matters of the law, judgment and mercy and faith. Yet it is necessary to do these things and not neglecting those others. You cleanse the outside of the cup and a dish but the insides are filled are filled from rapine and incontinence. You are like whitewashed tombs which is which indeed appear beautiful on the outside but inside are full of the bones of corpses and all uncleanness clouds without water as Jude described them, twice dead. Thusly, indeed, you also appear outside, righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, like the priests here in Malachi, Christ accused those of his own time where everything they did was done under a pretense of righteousness and for their own gain
1: and today all those all the churches have basically become like that where they uh, pass a bowl around to collect money or they'll have some good speakers just trying to sell a book that that the whole point of the church is just to um uh, leech money off the masses into the uh, the speaker and whatever organizations behind them right
0: absolutely it's all about merchandising it's about merchandising Christianity so that they can make money
1: and um bill didn't Herod, when he bribed mark anthony for the kingship didn't he raid all the tombs of their gold and strip it so that he could um use that as bribe money
0: yes they knew where the tomb of david was and and josephus even said that herod looted the tomb of david so he really got the bribe money if it was his money in the first place he got it right back but i think he looted the tombs to get it i believe so Christ upbraided them later in that same chapter, and, and we were quoting Matthew, and he said, Serpents, race of vipers, how could you escape from the judgment of Gehenna? For this reason, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall flog in your assembly halls and persecute from city to city thusly should come upon you all the righteous blood poured out upon the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel so they had to be descendants of Cain to be held responsible for the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias who had been murdered between the temple and the altar truly I say to you all these things shall come upon this race not generation as it is in the King James Version I read that from the Christiania New Testament The priests who opposed Christ in Jerusalem had no opportunity to repent, and the priests being addressed prophetically here in Malachi had no such opportunity either. Now when we discuss Malachi chapter 2, the prophet will make it evident as to why they were corrupt and why they could not repent. Yahshua Christ laid on them the blood of Abel, something which only the descendants of Cain could be accused of, and malachi explains that here as well it's right here in malachi chapter 2 in black and white
1: this is something you'd hope all all people you know white white christians or sorry white people who are on the fence with christianity or pagans or atheists would understand this first and then consider christianity because they would realize who the jews are like especially people who think that Christianity is just a trick the Jews have used to gain control of us. If they they understood this, then it would all become clear,
0: right? You know, it would be. It would all be perfectly clear. And the true nature for the wickedness of the Jews would be as plain as the nose on their faces. Yes. Just read the prophets first. And then read the history second. And then read the New Testament. And it's all perfectly plain that this is a racial matter. This is a racial issue, that these people aren't who they say they are. That the priesthood was corrupted by race mixing from even before the time of Malachi. And these priests never really did care. It would become much more corrupted later under the time of Herod. So Malachi's prophecy is a statement for his own time and a prophecy of of the conditions of the priesthood down through the time of Christ.
1: And immediately you understand what's going on in the world, why we're here, why we're being overrun, why the Jews are behind it all, why there's persecution of whites only and none of the other races, why all the other races are coming here. It's all because of this corrupted priesthood, how they've infiltrated us and trying to destroy us, Esau versus Jacob, which we'll get to soon as well.
0: Well, right. And and for the last thousand years, they've infiltrated all of the Christian churches and corrupted them. But they were corrupting Christian churches in the second and third century with false doctrines. They were doing it already then. Paul warned about it. Jude warned about it. Peter warned about it. Nobody pays attention to the warnings.
1: And that's just something um, our race just doesn't do. We don't infiltrate other races and cause all this, um, you know, trouble and try and turn them, uh, turn, you know, the race against each other. It, it's typically a cane thing, wa- wandering vagabond uh, merchants, the Jews, right?
0: Absolutely. Somebody in, in the Christianity chat was talking about the John Birch Society last night while I slept and, and, tagged me wondering about that and and why that went awry and why there was so much infighting in the John Birch Society it's attributed to the same exact phenomenon
1: they naturally cause
0: division in every single group look at the division they've caused in Christian identity look at Eli James (laughs) talk about causing division (laughs) with slander and, and, and with false doctrines introducing false doctrines so but there's examples nice guy, of right?
1: it
0: everywhere okay i gather we're about done for this evening and this is a relatively short program compared to what we usually present but that's okay
1: that's not a problem yeah, and then we can pick it up next week uh and get really get into the meat of it right
0: absolutely and and Everything that we've, we, we've laid the foundation for this week will become perfectly manifest next week, that this is exactly what Malachi is speaking about. So thank you.
1: All right. Thanks for me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you.
0: Praise Yahweh. Good night.